Welcome to Tomorrow's Tech Today, bringing you the latest in technology, talent and transformational change. With me, your host, Professor Sally Eaves. Hi, everyone, and a warm welcome to a special feature on the new normal. What does this really mean? Drawing on rich insights from the Enterprise Perspectives Report by A10, which surveyed senior application and network professionals around the opportunities, concerns and priority imperatives they're experiencing today and looking ahead. It's a really extensive deep dive discussion across technology investment and adoption trends across the globe, from AI machine learning to blockchain, right through to multi-cloud infrastructure and, of course, cybersecurity, alongside implications for skills and applying tech as a force for good. To explore all the insights, I'm delighted to be joined now by Tony Webb, the VP of EMEA and APAC for A10 International. Thank you, Sally. Pleased to be here. Glad for the opportunity to chat. Fantastic. That's what I love to hear. Thank you very much. And perhaps a great starting point would be just to share a little bit more about yourself. So your role um, at A10 and kind of a little bit more about the person behind the technology, if you will, and something maybe that's inspired you along the way just to help the audience get to know you a little bit more before we start. Yeah, sure. No problem. So I look after uh, A10 International for, uh, for A10. So that's pretty much everything that's outside of the Americas. I've got full P&L responsibility, so I look after all our sales operations, with the exception of Japan. In our early days, we started in Japan, and that's a very big market for us, so we look after that separately. But uh, the rest of Asia, Pak, and EMEA, as most of your listeners will be aware of, that's my responsibility. In terms of, um, you know, how did I come into the industry? Uh, I trained as an engineer. Um, You know, I, I graduated as an engineer. Um, I've been in the industry now for uh, probably too long, uh, 25 years plus, um, and that career has really broken down into kind of worked in the service provider space, then spent 10 years in, 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 in Cisco and Juniper, another five years in the networking industry, and then from about that time moved more into cybersecurity. The interesting thing is, I guess, what got me into the industry was I think I saw it as a really exciting place 25 years ago. I think what helped me, what has helped me do quite well and aspire in it, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I was quite an avid sportsman at at kind of a semi-professional level uh, as a much younger man, obviously not now. And what was interesting was the, the kind of the synergies in some way between sport and working in a sales environment. You know, you, you have a team and the team has to have different skills this is certainly when you become a manager in, in this industry. You need to have a strategy. You need to train, um, you know, and learn about technique and things like that. And, and I think that served me well. So that's what kind of got me into the industry. And I guess as I've moved on in the industry, what I think you never get away from enjoying the success of solving problems for customers even though I've moved up the ladder from an individual contributor, I'm still very passionate about that. There's still, I think at the heart of every salesman is that pleasure of, um, you know, using the technology that they're aware of to solve a customer's problem, um, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about more today. And I guess as time's moved on, the, the you know, a, a, another string to that bow of enjoyment that I'm getting later on in my career is 
I like to be able to, I've, I've put quite a lot of investment and I tend put quite a lot of investment in this in terms of bringing young people into the industry. Maybe people that didn't see this as an industry that they could come into, maybe, um, you know, from a gender diversity or a cultural diversity point of view. So, um, you know, I, I, I take a, a certain element of pride uh, and interest in, in bringing young people into the industry because it certainly needs young people. Oh, music to my ears that I couldn't agree more strongly we, we need that broader diversity in, in all forms including you know areas like neurodiversity for example too and absolutely I think the earlier we go in to help people can get curious curious about technology yes. um, to get more confident about it and to open up all the different possibilities for careers that technology empowers I think is an absolute game changer and particularly around diversity as well because we do have those big drop-offs at you know kind of like 12 to 14 kind of GCSE or equivalent choice age groups, but similarly at 18 and then at university level as well. For example, girls not taking STEM subjects or carrying them through. So anything we can do there to support that and kind of change the narrative, I would say, on what a career in tech looks like, I think is absolutely essential. Something I do in my nonprofit. So definitely we'll, we'll come back to that one for sure. So fantastic to see your commitment to that. And love your point about sport and leadership and kind of what you can take from another sector and apply it in a different role as well. Well, I think that's super important as well around creativity and uh, and pragmatic problem solving. So I love that. Fantastic, Jamie. Thank you. Um, so perhaps we'll move on now to talk about kind of the mainstay really of our conversation today, which is looking at the Enterprise Perspectives Report. Really is kind of a wealth of data around the new normal, lots of insights, really rich. And I think also with just the pace of change around what's happening right now at the moment, kind of even more relevant and kind of looking at kind of what's changing too. Um, so I wonder if we could explore that for a little bit to kind of set the scene about why ATN undertook the study um, and kind of the, the scope of it and what you were looking to, to kind of address and problem solve going back to that theme. Well, one of the things that, we need as a as a, as a vendor as a supplier to the the cybersecurity and technology marketplace is you need a compass you need some idea of of where the market's going and what's interesting and this is this is quite well reported and well read now um, often when when you make contact with a customer um, certainly in the current day and I think these stats have moved up in the last five years. They they eighty percent they're eighty percent of the way to making the decision that they need to make about technology. That's very different to how it was maybe ten or fifteen years ago. Um, so so the buyer now is much more informed. So one of the reasons that this you know we 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 put this survey together is we need to understand what's coming in the future. You know how is networking going to look in the future? Um, what are our customers going to? Uh, be needing more of? What are they going to be needing less of? How is that going to change on a geographic basis? I look after uh, for A10, as, as I explained, a massive geography. And there's there's differences there. You know, Europe Europe has slightly, you know, different uh, objectives and buying cycles and sees the market different to maybe the Middle East. And then again, Asia may be different as well. So um, the reason we put it together is it gives us a kind of a compass. Uh, it gives us a barometer, a reading of what the market is like now and then it tells us about maybe where it's going from a directional point of view and the reason that's even more important and, and you know I, I i want to make this as relevant as i can to now the report was was a few months back is we've gone through covid we're maybe coming out of the back of that but there's there's a huge shortage of components so you know actually making those products and getting those products to our customers in time is important so 
you, you don't want to be having a glut of one product and, and not enough of another. And the component shortage has, has made that even more relevant. So, you know, that's really why we put it together at, at a really high level. Absolutely. And that speed of change that you brought to the fore at the end there as well. Again, even if we just look at you know hybrid working and what trends people were expecting there and the impact that would have um, on the network, for example, just with the cost of energy, particularly in Europe, the changes that's already bringing in in terms of people's expectations and behaviours about where they want to work from, that's already you know coming into, into bear now too. So it's really interesting times in terms of that speed of change. So if we, if we drill into some of the insights from this, and definitely we'll bring out some of those geographical differences to the floor so I think they're really important but there are quite a few different levels of kind of intention action gaps or perception gaps I think as well and different different concerns and priorities so perhaps we could drill into that to start off with so kind of really looking at the roles around senior application and network professionals and kind of what was coming to the fore for them and their high level kind of thoughts around where their biggest concerns were around challenges but also what they're most looking to prioritize right now the the number one pretty much across the board was zero trust um and you know how can i protect myself against you know the the attacks on my organization this has moved from some young guy in a hoodie in some you know you see this in the movies working in some random location that's usually dark it's gone to a whole different level it's gone to a professional level in terms of attacks on organizations you know, it's not just ransomware, it's, you know, with some of the things that we've seen with geopolitical unrest in this year, we know that there is a, a program, you know, fairly aggressive attacks on organisations. Uh, it's, it's, it's arguably a form of warfare. So without a doubt, that is, is at the top. If I, if I then go down a level, I think that the, there's, the, view, the views are mixed depending on where you look, but it's, am I moving totally to the cloud? If I'm going to move totally to the cloud, when am I going to do that? How long is my hybrid environment going to exist? If I'm going to move to the cloud, you know, what level of guarantee and support am I, am I going to get from the CSPs, the cloud service providers? That one thing that came out from the report is that um, whilst a lot of the enterprise organizations are moving in that direction, they are expecting more from their from their CSP. Now, what's quite interesting is at a vendor, we're seeing that because we're having conversations with our CSP organisations. I can't talk about specific ones, but we know that they're trying to load more protection into the service that they're offering. Um, and when you're trying to do that, when your market's growing 15, 20% each year, there's component shortages as, as well. There's always a delay in, in, in adding that uh, to, to, the, to that environment as well, and I know we we'll probably touch on it some more. And the other thing, uh, the other the other sort of area of not concern, but where I think enterprise organisations are trying to work out how this is going to play forward is we've come out of COVID. The enterprise organisations are slowly seeing their employees come back to the workplace, but how long are they going to be spending at the workplace moving forward? Is it five days a week? Is it, is it two days a week? Um, that has a big impact on the network and your investment over the next three, three to five years. Not, not to also overlook the fact of real estate as well. So it's a, it's a, it's a, massive, uh, a massive area of, um, not concern, but a massive area that needs 
looking at and careful planning. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, I also think those points you made there about security are particularly interesting in terms of kind of the scale, the scope, the sophistication of the changes you mentioned there, and the fact that you know, bad actors are coming together. We've even having examples. I was doing some research the other day about Emotet, you know, one of the older kind of malware delivery mechanism systems that's been reinvented and reimagined again by bad actors working on it, wanting to reuse it in a new way. So I think that one in particular, it's not no surprise at all around zero trust being right up there as an imperative. So great to get your insights on that, Tony. Thank you. Um, and perhaps we can go into some of the verticals in a little bit more difference too now. Um, again, there were quite a few variations. One, one really caught my eye was about the gaming sector and the traffic increase we were seeing there, kind of an average uplift of around 53%. And I think, again, with that age of convergence we have now with different technologies coming together, the immersive ones, that's only set to continue too. So what was kind of your take really, or your key takeaways around the key vertical differences that came out of that data? Well, having, having pretty much most of my career, maybe with two, of, two or three gaps where I was purely service provider, um, I've, I've, been, I've been aligned to the enterprise industry for, for quite a long time. And I, I always think that there's been a correlation, depending on what enterprise you look at, mm-hmm. um, between their, them ex- knowing exactly how they make their money and how much it costs them if mm-hmm. if their network is down. So what I mean by that is years ago, certain industries could cope with maybe a, a degradation of the network or a slight loss of network capacity. But now um, I would say that most organizations, the gap between them, and I will answer your question, the gap between them is much closer now and right at the high end. But Obviously, gaming is 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 it's crucial. They they're, they're not hacked. That they they don't have um, any degradation in the quality of the network because they can directly see no network loss of revenue. Okay, the other industry, and I would say that gaming's probably level with or overtaken. The next industry is financial services. Financial services have a direct correlation. We've always thought. If you've been in the network industry or more recently in the cybersecurity industry, and I'm talking about myself, um, the next level to service providers whose whole reason for being is their network and the services that they provide, the next the next level is probably financial services. So financial services is really crucial. But one that has catapulted um, from probably – it not being super crucial to absolutely um, cutting edge, they they need to know, make sure that network's secure. Is probably the retail industry, and and that's because the retail industry has changed. If you if you look at look what's going on in the UK or in other countries, the way that we consume um, product now is very different to even the way that we consumed it five years ago, and COVID if you like, to, to a whole new generation how to acquire and procure in a cloud environment. Um, so, you know, if you look at it from a, from a point of view of the online retailers, their markets have absolutely soared. Um, they've had to invest in their, in their network resilience, their network uh, security, their network capacity. Um, so I think retail has massively moved up because a change, a change in the way 
we consume food, products, clothing, all those kind of things. And another one, which is probably not surprising if if you're not in this industry, but associated with this industry, is automotive. Now, the reason that automotive has changed, and I, I think Elon Musk and Tesla have had a lot to do with this. It's really funny. I, I recently was in uh, uh, in California, where our HQ is, and I was in, there's a there's a, a place there called Santana Row. I don't know if you know it, Santana Row. But I remember walking along Santana Row, and I think I think it must have been in 2000. It was the first Tesla showroom I'd ever seen, and it was it was in Santana Row, and they hadn't sold a car then, but they had a showroom. And if you look at um, what that that organisation and that industry has done to the to the automotive industry, because all the others now Daimler Benz, you know uh, VW Audi, they're all trying to catch up, but I know that that industry is changing because the way that they manufacture cars is going to change forever. The technology that they put in cars is going to change forever. And from an IT perspective, from an enterprise perspective, the way that technology integrates in that new manufacturing process, that new marketing process, the way that you know, you know they support the vehicle once it's out, out in the outside environment with its owner, the way that they support that vehicle is very different. If if you have an electric car and anybody has an electric car, there's a lot of you know updates that are done online. So you know a lot of industries are changing. Um, some of them more than others, but I would say top of mind for me are those probably probably those three industries. That that's excellent, and you've kind of brought something to to my mind there as well. So for for our listeners and viewers as well, have a look at maybe the communications and trends report that's come out quite recently um, from Salesforce with, with one of the architects of this one. But what you were describing there in terms of the change of verticals and really the complementary data really about changing consumer expectations and behaviours, kind of what they're looking for from that service relationship, but equally looking to some of those tech providers or, as you were saying there, like the auto providers, for example, about different types of relationships around their service provision and really open to, to, to new forms of partnerships too. So again, looking at change in a different way. So definitely recommend looking at that. It was really feeding into what you were saying there mm-hmm. around that evolution um, across verticals, but also about expectations and behaviours as well so really interesting stuff thank you um it makes me think as well you know because again this really was a wealth of data I, I know i know there's too much for us to go into today but perhaps in terms of something that surprised you in it from those insights that you saw in terms of maybe the speed of change in a vertical or something else completely but what kind of t- took the four to you there maybe a key priority or concern that really took you back and made you think well i guess on initially reading it it surprised me and then I looked back at technology. Yes. There's two things that surprised me. I looked back at technology over the last 20 years, um, and I'll use a really like old example, but it, it kind of makes the point. I remember when, you know, uh, from, a, from a networking service provider point of view, fiber optic was going to be everywhere, and the copper in the ground was literally going to be dead in a year. That, that was what the market was saying. And uh, I'm sure it's it's pretty much changed now, but the copper industry and the copper manufacturers and the technology found a way to sweat that asset for a lot longer. That was partly because the service providers couldn't afford wholesale change and also because the providers of copper uh, technology didn't want to see their market disappear overnight. Okay, so so I think that, you know, there's an example of that. And there's there's, there's many others that, 
you know, I won't bore your listeners with that. That that gets my point over. But what surprised me is um, we're all moving to the cloud. Okay, was is is kind of the message. We're all moving to the cloud, and um, you know, there won't be more. There won't be any more kind of uh, DIY uh, corporate networks. Um, We're all moving to the cloud. Well, that hasn't happened yet. And when you look at the report, um, it seemed to me that. Yes, we're expecting to move to the cloud. You know, we are going to change our current environment. But I don't think there was any country or any any enterprise that could completely let go. They still saw that there was going to be an element of, um, you know, uh, traditional architectures for enterprises. And the middle ground seemed to be a hybrid environment. That seemed to be the middle ground. So... You know, I guess on reflection, it's not a massive surprise. But when I first read it, you would have thought that they were all looking to move to the cloud. And, and you know, the numbers would have been in the 80, 90 percent range. But it wasn't. The second thing. And um, I was talking to a few people about this because obviously I knew I had this coming up. And uh, I don't I don't know if in the report it was wishful thinking because <laughs> and, and this is this is good news for technology. But when we look at the survey, it surprised me how many of your respondents expected the workforce to completely be back in the workplace five days a week? Um, I think the figures were around about 50, 55%, maybe even 60%, depending on, on what geography you looked at. I don't know if that was more hope and wishful thinking from some of the respondents, because obviously the complete opposite of that is they have to spend more on securing their employees and their devices and their data. Um, I'm talking about network security um, outside of outside of the corporate domain. And if that if you're going to have more people doing that um, for for an enterprise organisation, that takes some planning. That's a higher cost. If you're in a vendor environment, uh, that's an opportunity. Um, but but. So out of all of the report, genuinely, that surprised me. And I don't, I don't, I think that that may change even more over time. And if if I go to another point that we raised right at the beginning about my passion around young people, divert, cultural diversity, gender diversity coming into the industry, I think that five years ago, because, you know, I still get involved in, in, in interviews at A10, certainly for my theatre, five years ago, I don't believe that any any candidate, and um, certainly a candidate below the age of 35, would have had in their first three questions, um, how, how much time do you expect me to spend in the office? How much time can I work from home? Okay. Um, in the, you know, I don't interview as much now as I used to because my team do, but I'm hearing that that's the second or third question. And there's there's no... There's no fear of asking that question. It's a legitimate question. Um, I think young people five years ago wanted to know that they could bring their own technology into the workplace, you know, technology they were comfortable with. That that had a bearing on the decision that they made. But I think now the working environment that the enterprise creates, I think that that has a bearing on them being able to recruit the best people. 
Absolutely. I think one of the things that springs to mind um, on that particular area in terms of bringing the new people in. So I was a judge at a hackathon, um, Hack Zurich, about two months ago now. And it was fascinating in terms of what people were looking for in their future employment. Yeah. There was one um, young um, guy that I was speaking to, probably about 20. And he was saying on very similar lines, you know, it's kind of one of the top two things he's looking at is the balanced working relationship and what that actually looks like. Um, and for example, he was saying a lot of his his peer group are looking at not just having um, the split between home and office and, and third space, so to speak, but four day week as a priority. Um, and he was explaining why that would work in his particular circumstances and kind of what day they would like to take, but also that the process of onboarding itself, you know, for example, not replying to an advertised role in the normal fashion, kind of doing a piece to camera and saying, hey, this is me, this is what I care about, these are my skills, this is what I'm interested in, this is a project I'm doing now, and kind of talking about the journey, for example, around the hackathon, and kind of presenting themselves to an organisation like that, rather than trying to mould it to, for example, a traditional job ad. So, so many interesting areas at the moment, but it was fascinating. It was like this 40-hour deep dive with kind of 18 to 22-year-olds, and what they were looking for, and, and the other area on that was, say, shared values alignment too, the yeah. purpose for what the organization stands or stands for and delivering for society as well so as you were saying there that leadership around inclusion and diversity you know, changing that narrative and helping people you know upskill and reskill is a really big part of that too so yeah you're absolutely right there's a lot of dynamic change there i think it's data that will continue to change as we're seeing so much change in the world you know like the energy crisis again that's a lot of pressure from working from home um for a lot of people in terms of extra costs for example too so much to watch for there i think definitely um and perhaps we can drill into some of the technology elements a little bit more detail now too. So as part of the survey, we're looking at how enterprises have already made investments around areas like infrastructure, like security. Um, where have you seen people reporting most success, most satisfaction with that technology rollout done well? I, I would say that um, it's not a buzzword and I think it's real now, but I would say that the investment in you know AI technology and kind of that, that whole virtual environment where you're you're putting um, technology into the network that has its own intelligence. Um, so you know there, there's technology now that has the ability to think for itself. Um, by putting by putting this in the network, you you can take out cost, you can mitigate risk, you can in, in, increase your um, your operational efficiency. So I would say that. Where we're seeing the the most successful in investments are in are in those kind of areas, where it's almost um, like the technology has the ability. It looks at the behaviour of the network. It looks at the way the network's work, working, and you know it's kind of behavioural learning um, that the network has the capability to do. And I, and I think that there's there, from a security point of view, another another way that it's described is it's kind of self-healing, uh, self-healing security in the network that um, seems it looks at the profile of how the last attack happened. It looks at trends in the network, traffic trends, and it has the ability in an automotive environment to kind of make those changes to protect the network. So. I would say that um, most organisations are pretty much aware of all of the, you know, the four, four or five areas around technology investment, security, protection, detection, prevention, all those kind of things. But one area that seems to have boomed in the last three, four years is kind of that that built-in intelligence 
for the network to evolve. That that helps with trends that change in the network in terms of how attacks come. And also, it probably secures the investment for a longer period of time. If I may as well, I, I mean, it, this is almost like obvious to us in A10. Maybe there's a lot more awareness now, actually probably through paying kind of DDoS attacks. And I think the industry three years ago was maybe not aware that there are many products out there that can help against those attacks. And they're probably the most common forms of attack on any organization. And I can't think I've sat down with too many CTOs, CIOs, CSOs that have ever been disappointed where, with their investment in any form of DDoS protection. That's not just from A10, but that's from a number of organizations out there. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. I think it brings to the fore, A, the importance of awareness, that particularly around security, that there's so much support available for organizations at any size. Because again, I think some complementary research shows, for example, at SME level, there there is some confusion there, for example, also about where responsibility lies with themselves, for example, with a, with a service provider around cloud. There was quite a few kind of, again, awareness gaps, I would say, that came to the fore around education there. So really interesting to see that. And you're there around the acceleration of the option of AI um, in many respects. Couldn't agree more, I think, particularly around visibility of the network. Huge gains there. It's kind of that rise of active intelligence that you were describing there for me, making it increasingly real-time, informing that decision-making, but also reducing the noise you know, of alerts and other types of fatigue that a lot of people in ops are, are navigating that can contribute to things. So we've seen you know, a lot of cases of burnout, et cetera, too, and people leaving and you know, high churn from certain types of roles, too. So the more that we can bring in automation, AI, machine learning to be complementary, to be partners in, in what we're doing and kind of navigate the noise and, and really cut through that to, to things that are really valuable and real time, I think the better. I think we've seen a lot of awareness and increased adoption around that. And again, that data um, in the ATM research really, really supports that. So fantastic. I'm kind of adjacent to that. And I mentioned education and awareness there. Do you think we're seeing the same levels of investment around skilling and reskilling around these new technologies? So some research I was involved in specifically on AI was looking at that in quite detail. And it was coming kind of coming to the fore that there's a skills crisis around AI to, to put it, you know, to kind of knuckle it down. There's lots of different findings, but that was kind of the big crux of the matter. So on the one hand, you've got this paradox and you know, more and more organizations, as we've described, investing in AI, investing in machine learning, but maybe not having the pillars in place around skills for people in tech roles, but equally, you know, data literacy for non-tech facing roles too. So do you think we've got a we've got a potential problem that we might be sleepwalking into here in terms of not just the technology, but it's also a skills, a culture, a process conversation too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think with asking me that question, because of some of the things I said earlier, you're pushing an open door because, you know, it never, it never ceases to amaze me. You know, I've, I've got, um, you know, I've got children. They're not children anymore. They're in their kind of mid twenties, but, you know, and from talking to their friends, it, I'm, I'm really surprised when I look at learning establishments that you don't appear to me to be do, to be able to do too many degrees or masters in core areas that are aligned to our industry. You know, if we're recruiting graduates, not just here, but in India or, or the US or the Middle East, there's there's degree courses and MBA courses and master's courses that that, that touch on our industry, but they don't they don't completely match our industry. And my question to that would be, why not? You know, why can't you do 
um, some kind of degree that, you know, is aligned to AI and machine learning. It, you know, I'm sure people, some of the gurus within the industry that I'm from, could could come up with that syllabus, and, and I think it would be well well received. Uh, I mean, I mean that's the, that's the first thing. I think the other problem is, and and, and I think all organisations struggle with this is often when you're looking at driving sales and 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 and, and making the numbers and, and and making the numbers and delivering the number to the business and the enterprise that's acquiring from you and i'm not just talking about a10 i'm talking about all organizations both of you are have got different scenarios the organization buying the technology is trying to get the best possible price the organization selling the technology is trying to get the best possible price it's a very competitive market um and i wonder if both sides of the of, of, of the coin should should maybe allow a little bit more in there for kind of training and development. So I'm not just talking about people coming into the industry being trained in the technology, but maybe we need to think about, you know, looking at the proportion of cost uh, for introducing these two technologies. And I believe it's on it's on both the the acquirer and the supplier to maybe see if they can they can come together, you know, put a little bit more in the budget, which I know is going to be difficult. Maybe we'll touch on this in a moment in terms of where the world is today, because I think it's dramatically changed probably in the last four or five months. But uh, maybe, you know, uh, a little bit of extra expenditure um, on both sides would help, you know, the vendors could train the the end user and the end user probably uh, needs to set aside um, some budget to, to kind of have that, that training in-house. It's a little bit antiquated because we talked about the, the cloud service providers and the fact that the cloud service provider will do everything, okay? But we've already talked about that's not happening. There's going to be hybrid environments, there's going to be cloud environments, uh, and there's going to be fixed environments. So, you know, I believe that we're still 10 years away from from anything much different to that until there's some paradigm shift. So, you know, I, I, I think that, um, you know, the, the CSPs are, that their networks are going to grow hugely, the vendor community and the technology community are going to help them expand their networks. But, you know, I still think that uh, that hallowed ground of everything being done by a, uh, an outside consulting party, if you're an enterprise of, of you know, a reasonable size, is, is still somewhere off. Absolutely. And I, and I think complementing what you were saying there on the skills side of things, A, I think you're absolutely right. There needs to be a far closer relationship, I think, between academia and industry in terms of the, the timeliness and kind of the real world case studies and the, kind of closing the gap of time yeah. in terms of updating curriculums too, because I know that's a big challenge at the moment. Um, but equally, I, things I around skills confidence too. I have a point on that as well. Mm. I talked about my background. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think we have to accept as an industry is one solution, one technology. You know, if if I if I think about the mobile phone industry, I, you know, I don't want to talk about any particular mobile phone manufacturer. But if you think about the mobile, you know, one one size didn't fit all for the world. There's different operating systems, and they they've learned to to work together. You know, work across different networks and those kind of things. I think in the industry we're in. Um, we have to accept that maybe the best of breed for an end user isn't all technology from one vendor. That probably okay. will never be best of breed. So I think one of the things that we need to think about 
is we need to think about a level of acceptance that may be the best solution for an end user is a hybrid of technology. And the reason I bring that up is there are some large uh, technology vendors that maybe uh, have a relationship with um, education establishments, but they only tr- they're only looking to, to look at technology training in, in, in maybe an area that they work in. Whereas I think that you know we all need to we all need to put the same amount into the pool if we're in this industry to give everybody a complete overview of technology so that it's not um, it's not operating system. We need to understand that there's there's many operating systems out of there out there. There's there's many ways to solve a problem. So I, I think that in some ways training the future technical architect, the future CSO, the future IT manager in one area is is not helping any of us. Exactly. I, I kind of call that the rise of the generalist in, in the sense that I think we will need a specialism. I think that's really, really helpful. But we need a very, very high level of generalism, I think, at the moment. It's that holistic understanding that makes a huge difference. So I completely agree, particularly when we look at the amount of interlinking or convergence across different types of technologies and tools and techniques. Um, that's really huge, too. And then complementing it with the right skills. So we we're talking about that earlier. And I, and I talk about STEAM quite a lot so making sure again it's that holistic skills that help us be more agile and be confident and adjusting to different changes and and being less fearful of that but also things you know around emotional intelligence and empathy and kind of the the, the kind of the skills that get you buy-in frankly for your 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 idea in the organization whatever it might be whichever way you're looking at it um, I think they're hugely important too so again on that skills piece it's not just for example learning about particular disciplines such as AI it's also learning these broader skills that help you a have the confidence to apply them but also understand you know how you learn well as well and be a be a smarter thinker as well as a smart technology that we're talking about today it has to be that kind of whole round piece i think to be truly successful so so yeah i love the fact that we've got a shared interest around that definitely um and on the uh, technology side again i'm just going to kind of pivot back to that a little bit um i wanted to try to spend a few minutes looking at some of the differences we saw because again regionality came to the fore quite a lot in this research too so as an example um, in the middle east 5g was right up there in terms of you know being something that's being you know highly adopted and invested in um whereas for example in emir something like metaverse kind of came out more strongly ai machine learning was more static really across the board that was quite consistent but what did you see there again did anything surprise you in terms of different acceleration and prioritization by region for certain technologies versus another it didn't surprise me but um you know i I spent a bit of time between 2007 and 2011 I actually um, was based in the Middle East and, and spent five years here looking after emerging markets um, out of this region. And the one thing that, that I kind of found interesting, having up, up until that point predominantly worked in Europe and spent some quite a lot of time in the US, was, and, and this has definitely changed now because I think technology and technology advancement has given certain regions, certain countries, the ability to leapfrog. If you think of it in terms of rungs on the ladder, so I think that, you know, maybe if I'm using the Middle East as an example and the, and, the, and the question you raised is 5G's become really important to them. My view is in a lot of Europe, the terrestrial infrastructure has, has been built up over a long period of time, okay? So 
um, you know, there's a lot of reliance on that infrastructure. Whereas in places like the Middle East or some parts of Asia, um, for a whole bunch of reasons, maybe they haven't been doing it for so long in terms of their development. Um, the opportunity to maybe stop that investment in digging in expensive terrestrial networks or subsea networks or things like that, maybe the opportunity to move to 5G gives them the opportunity to jump two or three, you know, runs on the ladder. So, um, and and also one of the differences is if you look at kind of like demographics of uh, of the population, there's there's a very young demographic in the Middle East. So they're very much aligned to, you know, mobile devices and things like things like that. And, and that's the way they want to communicate. So that may be, that's just my view on why I believe 5G um, has really taken hold in the Middle East and possibly Asia-Pacific Asia as well. In terms of the metaverse, there in Europe, it's a much more traditional market and they're looking to move to that, you know, to that next paradigm. Um, and I would suggest that, that metaverse is is the next paradigm for Europe and it's maybe something that the Middle East uh the Middle East region and, and APAC probably still sees us two or three years away. APAC's an interesting one because I think it depends on what country you're talking about. There's some countries there that are right right on the on the leading edge and then there's some countries that are quite reserved and and maybe are not regarded as early adopters. So I think it depends on um on where you look. Absolutely. Again, I found that these particular differences really fascinating. And on the Dubai point as well, I always think, again, in terms of that kind of catalyst for innovation that's so, so important, they've also backed it up by a lot of, kind of policy decisions as well. Um, in terms of even things like 3, 3 and 4D printing, making really kind of transparent pledges around investment, backing it up with accountability and having ministers of AI, I think probably the first in the world, if I remember rightly, but there's been a massive focus on how to get that innovation right. So it doesn't surprise me around 5G in particular, because it is really the hub of the wheel, for want of a better expression, for so many areas of innovation. It can enable so many use cases to, to become reality. So that kind of fits in with, with that and my experience there too. So really, really interesting. If, um, if, if, if I may as well, just, just one, one, one thing that, sorry to, um, to, to, cut across but one thing that i thought was really interesting about the middle east and i think this is parts of asia as well what i noticed in working with many of the large organizations here and i i didn't i didn't hear this in the us or or in in europe and i still think it remains um if you went to a really big enterprise organization in europe or in in the us if you said to them we've got this technology it's um it's leading edge it's going to transform your world it's maybe because of the technology and what it can do, it's slightly more expensive than the traditional technology, but you could potentially be the first one to use it. If you say that in the Middle East or certain parts of Asia, there, I'm all in. I, I want to do that. And I believe this is not the individual or the company. This is a cultural thing. Um, whereas if you say that in Europe or certain parts of America, they don't want to be the first. They don't want to take that risk. So when we when I looked at the report, having that those experiences, real life experiences, it didn't surprise me with some of the answers that certain regions and certain countries were okay. I'm not going to say taking a risk, but 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 literally leapfrog into you know much more advanced new technologies than maybe some more cautious parts of the world in Europe, as an example. But I, I thought that was an interesting point to to maybe make to your listeners. 
Oh, definitely, 100%. And I love that kind of the whole metaphor of, of leapfrogging as well, because in other areas, kind of going back to, you know, we've had echoes around inclusion in this conversation as, as well. Um, in that particular area, we're seeing certainly in Africa, for example, a couple of projects that I'm involved in, this getting the, the basics right in terms of connectivity has been key. But then working on top of that, it really is this leapfrog opportunity. Um, and the levels of innovation coming out of a couple of hubs that I'm working with at the moment are extraordinary. You know, it's, it's, it's just absolutely incredible. We've really shown what the art of possible is. And I do think that is absolutely correct. There's quite a few different examples um, of, of where people have really seized that. It's not a catch-up. It's not a get-to-the-status-quo. It really is it's overtaken leapfrog here. So absolutely spot on. So, yeah, thank you for taking the time to share that. I think, I think it's absolutely really, really strong, strong point there. Um, I also wanted to talk a bit more about security, but it's come out naturally all through our conversation, but it did come out really into number one in terms of concerns for the IET professionals in the report. I think it's about 18%. We've already mentioned um, some of the different types of threats, how these threat vectors are changing. So whether it's like action um, nation states, for example, we talked about the political situation, um, but also DDoS, as you mentioned earlier, and also you know things that we thought had gone away and have actually now come back and been reinvented. So things like Emotet, which I kind of think of like a chameleon in the cybersecurity world just keeps reinventing itself. So we've got all these different things that are happening. Did anything surprise you or alarm you even from some of the research looking at security and more differences? Um, so for one example for me was a stat around 47% of participants saying that they felt that their CSPs weren't meeting SLAs in this particular area. So obviously that raises concerns when just looking at that, you know, around things around compliance and vulnerability. So did anything in this area surprise you? And if you had any recommendations about how to do that differently? Well, obviously I mentioned it before, but it's a pretty big report. But one of the things that stuck in my pot, in my mind was that higher expectation with cloud service providers. That that surprised me, quite frankly. But it was it, it was it was right through the report. That was that was clear. I guess what never ceases to surprise me, even now, is I, I still don't believe that I'm trying to find the right words. I don't know if it's acceptance. I don't know if it's uh, literally the, the, the phrase of burying of heads in sand. I don't think that's happening. But I, I, denial, I think there's a degree of denial as to what's actually happening in the world. Because you don't know you've had a security breach or you've been attacked doesn't mean you haven't been attacked or had a security breach. We tend to, we tend to hear about the big stuff you know, the, the, the big hacks, and usually it's big organisations in any countries. But I still urge organisations to look more deeply into what they should be worried about is what they don't know. That, you know, I, I don't believe that there's still today the right level of investment in protecting uh, their environment. I wondered if the CSP comment was because there was a maybe an expectation of a level of what they was buying and in reality um, yes. some of that is difficult to do in a cloud environment uh, also i'm aware that the cloud providers are literally working you know 24 7 trying to add new levels of security and new levels of uh, capability in the services that they're providing but um I guess the bit that, that, that concerns me is I still don't think that there is 
anywhere near the awareness that there should be in enterprise organizations about how vulnerable they are. Um, I still think there is a, a level of vulnerability there that, that needs to be addressed. DDoS, I think, is absolutely front and center. I think there's a, there's a good awareness about that. And there's many vendors in the marketplace, including ourselves, that, um, you know, have carrier class capability technologies to solve that problem. Okay. But there's, there's, there's plenty of other ways and plenty of other tools that are there. Uh, in the marketplace, not just with A10, that can give you a higher level of protection. And what also needs to happen is it, it's probably worth investing, you know, external counsel to come in and actually look at the network. Because I, where I've seen where I've seen some of the best results is where an organisation is it's a dilemma for a for a CTO or a CSO is is actually to say, well, you know, we've got great skills in house, but let's get the experts in. Let's get them to look at our network and give us um, give us some kind of report on uh, on where our vulnerability is. I think that's money well spent. Absolutely, I mean that is the power of partnership, isn't it? Isn't just about the technology that can support you. It's that facilitation that you were talking about there, getting that external take of what's happening. And you're absolutely right. I mean, pretty much every conversation I'm having um, from from a kind of consultancy enterprise perspective is around you know reducing complexity, increasing visibility, enhancing integration. Um, and there is this growing awareness. I think you're right. I think in some areas there is still a denial, but it is coming up more in conversation about we need to do more here, and it's, it's almost like it's unknown unknowns isn't it there was there was a very popular phrase a, a few years back but it really has got to that level and i think the speed and scale of change we've had over the last two years it was it was understandable that things were done incredibly quickly and some of the things in terms of ensuring that we still do have that really clear picture of all the infrastructure estate is really really key and that pause for thought for so many organizations that's another thing i keep seeing recurring um, and going back to you know the new normal theme so many organizations right now are reflecting what's gone well what hasn't and you know, how can we use space differently in the future? You know, is it going to be more like a collaboratory? You know, it's around co-creation and those types of activity. Um, or is it for something different? So this kind of space, place, pace feel um, that I talk about a little bit, I think is also really key at the moment too. So, yeah, I, I love that that example you came to the fore, yeah, at the moment. And it is this point of reflection for so many, I think, at the moment about how to do this well. Have you got any customer examples that you think um, would kind of showcase this, where an enterprise has taken some of these things on board? So it could be from security and kind of getting that balance between you know, defence and agility. One of the other areas we've seen from, from a report too, but something that's done really well in terms of improving, well, improving all those weaknesses we talked about there and reversing them the other way around. Have you got, got any good examples of that? I, I can talk generically. Obviously, I can't, um, I can't give specific examples, but of course. You know, I, and, and also I'm going to talk about kind of acceleration yes. um, of decision-making. So, <laughs> Don't let me get off answering the question, okay? But but you know, you know, in a positive in a positive kind of no, I I see that you know we're going through some tough times now, and I don't believe that any enterprise organisation will hold back on investment in security and network protection. I believe they will spend more, irrespective of how they've got to cut their cloth with you know the way. The world is going at the moment in terms of maybe a downturn in the economy. I'm sure that security investment will still maintain. I still think that you'll see um, a much higher level of technology or security individual on the board of companies. I absolutely think that. But giving you some examples, I'm seeing decision making in lightning quick speed. So 
I've got examples of a, of a big government agency in Europe. It was, um, it, it, it was a time of the year when they were coming to the end of the financial year and the population uh, needed to access information online. And um, I believe that they were having problems with security. Uh, the network kept going down. Um, we, as an organisation, literally went to uh, went to meet with them. We we talked about a proposal. The, the proposal was a, a, a much higher cost, but a, literally a decision of a government organisation was made in six weeks. Wow! In six weeks, they made a decision and made the investment. Um, actually, it took six weeks to deliver it. The actual decision was made in about six days. So there's a, there's an example there. And then awesome. I, I have other examples of service providers in Europe where literally you get a phone call because they have lost, they know that they've lost X or Y um, or Z and they have maybe spoken to another service provider who we supply. For some reason, they weren't aware of us. They make the call, we do the presentation and we implement our DDoS solution, our firewall technology, you know, management system that gives them the opportunity to integrate with their management system, and the decisions made really quickly. As as I'm sure you can appreciate, I can't I can't talk specifics because in most cases, when you're talking about security and installations, um, the enterprise organisation uh, wants sort of total kind of uh, non-disclosure in terms of who we're working with. Absolutely, no, totally appreciate that, and you really gave a lovely flavour there. So I, I think that has set the scene really, really nicely. Um, it sparked something else um, in terms of thoughts as well. So you were talking about this this incredible change that we're having at the moment in so many different areas, so many different vectors of change. You were saying there you felt the investment in security would continue. I couldn't agree more strongly. What about investment in areas such as ESG or environmental social governance as well? Because again, this is an area that I've been deeply involved in for a long period of time, but it's been really heartening to see that as something that's moved, you know, sometimes from more of a periphery conversation to something that's becoming far more you know, embedded in so many aspects of organisational life, but also is moving beyond talking about it to, to a lot more, you know, a transparency, but more commitment and accountability, you know, getting measurement better and comparable and consistent. There's so much that needs to be done here, but I'm seeing a real movement towards that and, and really prioritising it. Do you think that will continue? Or do you think some of the other challenges around costs, for example, and other things we've spoken about today will have a negate factor? Or, and I, okay, I'm going to acknowledge my bias on this one. I'm hoping that there's more resonance now to show that actually, if you do that well, you'll save actually a lot of things uh, in terms of costs and efficiency around you know, carbon consumption, for it's one example. If you do this right, so you actually will get you know, multiple benefit to the business anyway and create shared value. So I think we're seeing more resonance about that understanding, but I'd love your take on that. I'm going to answer it in two ways. If I, if I think of my first thought is, and, and it's just being a realist, it's pretty much on every organisation's agenda. And I don't think it's lip service. I think they do genuinely care about that and they do genuinely want to make a difference um, because I know they absolutely believe that if they don't have that on their agenda, that will make them less successful as an organisation because people will choose to go in a different direction. Okay, so uh, true. And I've never seen it. I've never seen it as prevalent as apparent as it is now, particularly in the younger generation. But that, that's not saying that the older generation don't care about it as well. I think it will come under pressure because. You know, if we just look at what's going on in the world at the moment, you know, the, 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 the climate summit's going on at the moment. You know, I'm already seeing 
rumblings of maybe dates moving, of commitments and things like that. And the reason for that is because governments are under pressure to to spend that money to help people pay their their fuel bills or um, to help the economy in other ways. But the real positive that comes out of this, and it was something that it was something that I alluded to earlier, and I, I was just using the I was just using the automotive industry as an example. What we're seeing, and you know, when I talk to not just colleagues in HM, but you know, friend, many friends that I've got in the industry, maybe in different industries, in, in a number of industries, there's a paradigm shift coming. There's a complete change. There's a complete change in the way that companies have done what they do for maybe many, many years. I'm talking tens of years or or maybe you know half a century in terms of the way that they've done things. That's changing. And that gives them the opportunity to look at everything, okay? And when they look at everything, because it's a wholesale change, I think there's the opportunity there to really look at sustainability and the environment and the way they do things. There's a complete opportunity there to build that into the DNA of their development and their future and the way that they're going to manufacture and produce uh, and deliver whatever they do as an organization. So that's that, that's the, you know, I think current programs may be under pressure for the short term, but I think we should get more excited about because of technology change and consumers change of thought process in what they what they want to buy and the way they want to live their life. That is creating, that is meaning enterprises are going to have to change everything. So if you're going to change everything and going to put a new blueprint in place, there's a great opportunity to build that into it. So that would be my kind of slightly bad news, but maybe good news answer in, in uh, together. Absolutely. No, it's a bit of both, isn't it? Totally. Yeah. I totally yeah. agree with that. And I think it's that whole point about it has to be embedded by design. Yeah. And if we treat things around ESG measures in the same way, so, you know, the whole KPI type, type of thing, I'm working on something which is new index um, around turn, return on social impact investment. So it helps to treat some of these more ESG related metrics in the same ways we do with other KPIs and also bring things together. So one thing we're working on in, in a particular organization, um, I, I can't mention this either, but it's, it's around cloud computing, it's around the dashboarding. And for example, there's a lot of granular detail that you can get around cloud consumption and identifying where waste is, for example, and really kind of better you know, go with that flow and adjust as smartly as you should and could create great savings. But at the moment, it can be quite hard to find that data. And it's kind of somewhere over here it's kind of a classic silo approach where if you integrate it into that dashboard it's kind of part of your everyday ops it's a very different equation um so there's so many things and practical things that can be done um and i think we are getting there but but you're right i think there's there's vectors at the moment they're going to push back a little bit but overall that evolution of expectation and behaviors whether it's from consumers you know ecosystem partners within our organizations you name it people want to see that commitment that, and it being delivered upon so i think the more we can embed that to show actually this is we'll do really well by doing that too kind of do well by doing good it brings the two elements together in terms of that business evolution so that's where i hope we're, we're going with that taking all, all of that on board um and i know we're, we're, we're running out of time here slightly so i, I might just go to kind of like a final more open-ended type of question because you know, we've had a lovely like fireside i would describe it chat today
today. So the springboard of the report and looking at what this evolving new normal, so to speak, actually is. And so much change is coming to the fore here, whether it's technology or expectations or culture or you know, new vectors that people are really, really wanting to see delivered on, like ESG. You know, taking all of this into the round and some of the challenges like security and different perceptions and action gaps. If you had to kind of give a one, two and three, say a gold, silver and bronze of what has resonated you with the most for people to look at, to think on, to act upon, what would that be? Okay. First off, the environment for protecting your data and uh, protecting your employees and protecting your IP, that environment is not going to stay the same. It's not going to get easier. It will get harder. I believe that you know that environment is going to continue, and I think we will see more. We won't see the same. We won't see less. So the first thing is you, you have to make sure that you can protect all of the things that I mentioned. That That's first off. Secondly, I think that it's not going to be overnight. It's going to be a steady journey. I believe that not everything will shift to the cloud. There will still be certain elements of your business that will move to the cloud, but there'll be other other parts that won't need to change. I think a hybrid environment is going to remain for at least the next 10 years. Okay, Um, absolutely. And the the third thing, and and you know, it, it, um, it won't surprise you. I'm going back to what I'm passionate about is when I go back to the analogy of of kind of building a team. And you know, if, if I think about you know a soccer team, you're not going to win many trophies if you've got eleven goalies. You might not let any goals in, but um, you know, you, you're not going to be able to perform in the way that you want to perform. So, in terms of you know growing your organisation. Uh, in terms of making your organization successful, you need to make sure you've got the right people, the right skills, playing the right position. Okay. And I'm in this industry and myself and my team are constantly having to learn about new tools, new technology, uh, new network advancements, and also new challenges that we face in the industry. You know, the the bad guys out there are always going to find a new way to to steal um, to steal something from your organisation. So the third thing is, you know, make sure that uh, you, you mentioned it earlier that we need to make sure that you know we're we're a lot more skilled and a lot more aware of the technologies that we're using and and how to get the best out of them. And maybe that will will need some kind of um, recruitment campaign of um, different indivi- individuals. So I, I think you need to invest in understanding that technology as well as the other two things I mentioned. I, 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 I don't feel like I'm coming up with some, you know, groundbreaking statement. It's just a flavour of everything that I've, I've kind of said through, through this fireside chat. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think one thing that, you know, just take AI as a particular example. We talk about you know, the risk of bias, don't we, in AI an awful lot and AI ethics. But one thing maybe we don't talk about as much is there's, you know, 180 plus human biases as well. So it's not always just about, you know, the end result, of the algorithm. It's how has that algorithm come up? Was that team that was involved in it truly diverse? Because that can take away the risk of things like implicit bias. And people actually recognize, ah, we haven't looked at it that way. You know, is it a case of the data? And 
common biases have been baked in from things from, say, 40 years ago. What can we do alternatively? Can we use synthetic data? There's so much stuff that can be done. So it's looking at it holistically, you know, as we've been describing today, I think really does matter. And it's a very fair point. There isn't like a silver bullet, is there? There isn't a panacea that can do exactly this because, you know, going back to something you said earlier, every context is different, not just from a vertical point of view, but for every organisation, things do have to be personalised. The purpose will be slightly different. There's so many, you know, we need to get granular with this, but I think the overall flavour of what we've been talking about today in terms of the trends that matters, where the priorities and concerns are, equally where the opportunities are, and how to look at this from that tech, culture, process, change management, skills uplift, recruitment, onboarding. We've really looked at it from that kind of full life cycle approach about what matters and where we can do more. And I think that's a great way to help people to, to kind of stop and pause for thought a little bit and reflect about where they are on that particular journey and kind of how to take the next steps forward, whichever way they want to focus on first. So, yeah, I think it's a, it's a great way to actually look at that. Uh, I think it's a very fair point. And it also reminds me, there's a series, um, so everybody listening and watching, and, and for yourself, I'd love if you'd like to join this or recommend someone from your team. Um, but I have a series called 365, which is all about visibility of role models in tech, kind of from all age groups, all backgrounds, truly, truly diverse. It's kind of to help people be curious and more confident and think, hey, do you know what? I want to find out more about this, whether you want it as an end career or not. It's all about that that change in the narrative, as I, as I used that term earlier, that confidence and curiosity and, and being creative with tech. And yeah, I, I really love doing that. So if anybody wants to be involved in that, again, just another step on that journey to, to help get more people involved in what I think is an incredibly, we've seen it today, incredibly dynamic sector that makes a lot of difference You know, from home life, work life, the hybrid between the two. So yeah, it's a really, really exciting place to be. So Tony, thank you so much for joining me today. I know we, we could easily do another hour on so many different elements of this but it's been an absolute pleasure and thank you for taking the time and for sharing so many great examples and your personal take underpinned by some fantastic research too i really appreciate it thank you sally really enjoyed the conversation thank you so much and thank you all for watching and listening too we'll be back soon with another episode of tomorrow's tech today thank you all for joining us thanks for listening to this episode of tomorrow's tech today if you enjoy what we're doing, please subscribe to us and leave a review. It really means a lot. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram and see more behind the scenes video footage on YouTube. Thanks for listening. Hi everyone and a very warm welcome to today's special feature on all things energy efficiency and green IT infrastructure alongside purpose-driven leadership too.
And within this, we have a particular focus on the impact of data processing units, notably the Bluefield DPU by NVIDIA, which is delivering superb advances in performance and energy efficiency. So to explore exactly this, I'm delighted to be joined now by Ami Badani, the VP of Networking at NVIDIA. 